We're in a series called uh, Who Am I? And we're asking that question uh, because we're trying to find, learn, determine, discover uh, what it means to find our identity in Christ. And so it started in January. Pastor Mark uh, started with it, and it was supposed to be one month long. And uh, Pastor Mark's going to be uh, speaking this morning in just a few minutes at our Kinsey campus. And so I'm here today, but he said, Nate, I want you to continue the identity series for another month. He said, I've been getting a lot of feedback from it, and I think it's where our church needs to hear. And said, so he said, until every last one of us are completely sane, we're going to continue the identity series. So we may be here a while. But how many of you have ever um, had an experience uh, where somebody has kind of prejudged you or maybe your repu- uh, reputation preceded you and you could tell that someone was treating you a certain way based on maybe what they had heard about you or maybe somebody's judged you based on an action uh, or a behavior of yours. You know, maybe that person has put a label on you like you're the idiot who deserves to die because you didn't use your intern signal, right? And then you get out of the church parking lot and it only gets worse from there. And... We have these labels that kind of follow us sometimes. We have these things that people think about us. We have things that people say about us. And we know they're just kind of treating us in a certain way because they're viewing us in a certain way for whatever reason. And so a couple of years ago, I was uh, renting renting a house to a couple and as a husband and wife. And so about six months into them renting, I was meeting them and um, I was kind of leaning through the window of their, their car and he was in the driver's seat, she was in the passenger seat and and I was saying, you know, I'm going to be out of town for a couple of days. And they said, oh, what are you doing? I said, well, it's for work. And they said, oh, well, what do you do? I said, well, actually, I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm going to speak at a conference for a couple of days. And it was like totally silent. And they looked white as a ghost, like, oh, my gosh, you're a pastor. And so immediately the, the wife in the passenger seat, she's like, oh, no, I'm so, so sorry. I've cussed in front of you so many times and you're a pastor. And then the husband like completely throws her under the bus and he, he's like, yeah, she has a really potty mouth. She's trying to work on that. <laughs> he didn't defend her at all. But in that moment, they treated me completely different. Like, oh, here's this pastor now. And when you're a pastor, like, you know, like designated driver, well, pastors, when we show up places, we're the designated prayers. It's like all of a sudden, no one else knows how to pray over the food because Pastor Nate's here. So Pastor Nate, you're the pastor. You want to pray? We're the designated prayer. And so whatever it is for you, uh, you're the business owner, you're the smart person in the room, you're the one with the degree, or you're the doctor, and so everybody comes to you when they have any kind of question about any sort of health issue, even though they're not in your office, but you're the doctor, so I'm coming to you, right? And so we have all these different titles and labels that we wear, and people uh, treat us in a certain way based on those titles or those labels, and I think probably... Uh, If we were really honest, which is what we're going to do today, we're going to try to get really honest with ourselves and evaluate some things in our own life. And this has kind of been a journey that I've been on over the last couple of months. And so I was uh, attending this uh, session uh, at this conference a few, uh, a couple months ago, I guess. And they were talking about some of the preconceived ideas that we carry into our relationships and how we interact with different people. And uh, the, the presuppositions that we come in and the ideas that we have about certain groups of people, certain types of people, certain ways that we kind of observe the world around us, but more particularly, the way that we observe people in the world around us. So here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to ask you not to say anything out loud. 
just kind of internally. Some of you, are, you might laugh at a couple of them, and that's fine. But I'm going to throw some words on the screen, and I just want you to kind of observe what comes to your mind when you see the word, okay? Some of you are going to think about a phrase. Uh, some of you are going to have just a, a thought that comes in there. Some of you, you might have an image or an, a picture of a person in your mind. So we're going to go through quickly some words, and I'm going to start off with something that's really easy and won't step on anybody's toes. But what do you think of when you see this right here? All right. Okay, on the flip side of that, what do you think right here when you see this? Okay, next. We'll just roll through these. Divorced, what do you think? Married, maybe. Okay, how about married with kids? Like I work with teenagers. That's when you become old, when you're married with kids. You become old there. And then maybe you're married with five kids. That's me. (laughs) And when you become married with five kids, you're just crazy. And that's what people assume on you. That's the identity I carry, right? What do you think when you think about a rich person? So money, money, money comes to my mind. Money, 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 right? Okay, so I think about rich people, right? Millennial, that's a funny one. You're going to have fun with that one, right? I would love to see what some of you are thinking when you hear that, okay? How about this? You're in Xenia, and no doubt, pretty much in any public space in Xenia, you go walk into the YMCA, you walk into McDonald's, you're going to see uh, somebody who fits this right here, homeless, okay? What do you think of when you see a homeless person? What comes to your mind? What ideas do you have? How about this? LGBTQ community, right? And what do you think when you think about that? You think about that group of people. What comes to your mind? Muslim. What comes into your mind? Racist. Atheist. See, for all of us, we've had a lot of different thoughts that came into our mind when we saw those words. And so what the experts say, whoever these experts are, They study the mind and they study the way that we interact with one another. They say that there are several ways that we kind of come into a relationship with other people and that we view our relationship to other people. And there are these filters that we kind of come into and we're automatically making determinations about everybody that we meet, everyone that we hear about, everyone we see on TV, everyone we're reading about on Instagram or watching their Facebook posts or all of this stuff, right? We're automatically kind of retaining and receiving all of this information through a series or a set of lenses in which we then make determinations about the people that we're interacting with. And so here's a few of the categories um, as, as they suggested, all right? So we look at this. Intellectual capacity. Uh, are they articulate? Are they uh, their accent, their educational level? Uh, how does all of that come into play when you're kind of observing, you're sizing someone up? Their political affiliation. And it's not just a label of Republican or Democrat. It's also the beliefs and the values that it represents, the things that they stand for. And so we're making all of these uh, judgments and assessments when we uh, affiliate someone with a particular uh, party. How about family name or title? Okay, where, uh, where they come from, what their, what their status is, what kind of background they grew up in. We're making these predetermined judgments all the time. Economic status. We look at someone's wealth and the toys they have and the possessions they have, and we're making judgments about them. Popularity. Are they a part of the in crowd? Okay, are they famous? Maybe they're an identified leader, and so you get nervous every time you're around them, and you don't want to mess up, and you don't want to say something that's going to contradict what the leader says, right? So we go into situations, and we, we kind of determine what we do based on the, the um, identity that we have associated with that particular person or this group of people. Lifestyle situations, maybe the the addict, the one who's addicted to something. What do we think, feel, observe? How do we do that when it comes to the addict? Or maybe uh, somebody 
uh, with a different sexual orientation or questions about that or uh, a group of, of, of people that are standing for a certain thing that maybe you don't stand for, right? Physical appearance, we do this all the time and we look at hair and skin color, height and weight and we make these judgments. How about cultural, our ethnic background, race, our practices, gender, When it comes to gender roles and who can do what and what types of jobs are for this type of person and this type of person and what are the roles even when it comes into a home and probably most of us who have gotten married, we kind of had to deal with that when we got married, what we thought was the woman's role and what we thought was the man's role and how that interacts and all those different things. But we come in viewing other people through the eyes of gender and we automatically make predetermined foundational thoughts about them, these suppositions that we go into that we kind of have established as truth in our minds about others. How about religion? We do this a lot uh, in church, of course, and so all of us Nazarenes, we absolutely hate Baptists. We just don't like them. No, I'm just kidding. But we have all these different uh, denominations and, and different ways that we view uh, scripture and the Bible, and then when we look at other religions and other gods and the ways that other people uh, practice that, we come in and we make assumptions about these people. And so the thing about this is not that all of these things are right or wrong for us to do. I'm just saying it's the way it is. This is, this is what happens. We can't really get away from it because we take the way that we were raised. We take all of our experiences in life. We, we take what we've learned and what we've obsessed and what we've ascertained in our own minds to be the way that this type of person generally, in broad terms, generally speaking, this is kind of the path that I've seen them take. And so we establish certain things about their life and their identity and we assume things about them that may be true, they may not be true. But the reality is that we come to these types of relationships and these observations with other people, and we do it without even thinking. It's almost totally subconscious because we're taking all of our education and all of our life experience and all of our upbringing and all of our raising and everything that has brought us to where we are today, and all of those things kind of catch up all at once as we're meeting a new person, as we're observing other people, and it just happens. It just goes that way. And the thing about all of these is that these filters that we use, they play a significant role because it ends up determining our perception of other people, our attitude toward other people or groups of people, our behaviors and the way that we treat them, the amount of attention that we give to one group or another. The amount of willingness to actually listen and and listen to understand someone else, it all comes through that filter. Our affirmation of someone, whether we give them validity or I don't really care what they have to say because fill in the blank. It determines all of these things. And so I think, I think that there's something better that we can do than just follow blindly all of the filters that we come into life with, all of the things, the the suppositions that we come into when we observe the world, when we observe, observe those around us. I think there's something better than that. And I think as we look at the life of Jesus, I think as we read about him and we read about the way that God interacted with mankind, And we read about him sending his son Jesus and how Jesus modeled for us the way to live and view and interact with one another. I think that there are some things that are that are better. I'm not saying all those things are wrong. I don't even know that we can get away from all of that. 
But could we, could we come to a place where we observe people first, not through the lens of their political party, not through the lens of what we think or perceive to be the case or established truth about a particular person and their life and what brought those things into their life and how they're going to get out of it and all these things? What if we came first through the lens of something better? What if the filter in which we viewed other people was something better? This weekend, tonight, Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sunday, Many of us will be huddled around TVs, and no doubt there will be some crowd shots that you'll observe, and somewhere in that crowd, someone will be holding a sign. That sign matches what many of us have seen in most gas stations from here all the way to Florida. As you're using the restroom, you're reading, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, I have this one memorized, by the way, I am a pastor. I don't need to read it. Don't be intimidated. It's okay. (laughs) That whosoever believes in him, they wouldn't perish. They would have eternal life. It's, It's so common. It's so ordinary in our American culture to see this. It's painted on the faces of pro athletes. It's held in signs and stands of thousands of people. It's posted in bathroom stalls all over the nation. And it's something that we hardly ever preach about on a Sunday morning because it's so common. But this passage, this moment in time when Jesus spoke these words, it was anything but common and it was anything but ordinary. It was so radical, it was so completely different than any kind of theology that anyone had experienced to this moment. And so when Jesus spoke the words as he's explaining, explaining how God wants to commune with humanity, he says, for God loved the world. Nope, no, that's not what he said. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. And I'm looking at Dean right here on the second row. Dean's been a good friend to me, and just a couple of days ago, he knew that I was working on a project, and I was trying to get it done, and he texted me, and he said, I just want to come and help you for a few hours. I just want to do what I can to to help you get this project done. No strings attached. Like, wow, that's, that's a good friend. That's cool. And so every once in a while, and I've certainly told him this, you know, probably 50 or 100 times, I love you, man. Sometimes when we're we're, we're leaving, we're seeing each other at church, and we're going our separate ways, or we've done double dates with him and his wife, and they've been in our home, and they're leaving. Love you guys. You know what? But the, the moment I say, Dean, I need you to come over here for a second. Dean, I so love you. Like, that's just weird, right? Like, things get really, really awkward, and that's where he leaves and never speaks to me again. And yet, this idea was a brand new idea that had been introduced as if it were for the first time that God would look on humanity in its broken state where we found ourselves with with no hope, with no way out, 
Humanity, we found ourselves killing one another, lying to each other. We found ourselves buried in our own selfish desires, pursuing only our own needs and wants and what we thought was best for us. And he said, I don't, just, I don't just love you. Love you, man. No, I, I so love you. I am passionate about you. I am obsessed with you. For those of you that are parents in the room, you get it because sometimes when you're talking to your kids saying, I love you is just not enough. You have to sit down. Maybe you get down on your knee. I love you so much. I love you so much. And I tell my kids, I I don't want you to ever forget your dad as long as I live. I love you so much. It's just not enough to just say I love you because I also love chocolate (laughs) and I love vanilla lattes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty basic. If you want a really good one, by the way, Coffee Hub. Just a little plug. You're welcome on the fourth row. But when I look at my five kids, or hug my wife before we go to bed, it's just not, not I love you. Sometimes it just, it takes a little bit more than that. I, I love you so, so much. I would do anything for you. I am passionate about you. I am obsessed with you. There is nothing else that is more important than you. I love you so much. This verse is so uncommon. This verse is anything but ordinary. This verse is anything but routine. This verse is anything but just another sticker on a bathroom stall. God himself sent his son Jesus to be the full representation of his so kind of love. It's interesting that today we sang reckless love. Every song that we sang today was about love. There was zero communication about what I was going to be talking about today, mostly because I didn't know until this morning. But somehow God knew. God knew what we needed to hear today. There's some in this room you need to hear, number one, that God loves you so much. God loves you so much. He sent his son to be that representation, to be that love in the flesh that could come and leave his space, leave his spot, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and step completely into our brokenness and our humanity and our fallen state and say, I love you so much. He loved the world. He loved the world. Not how, He loved the religious people who tried really hard to do their best. I love the people who seek me and try to do it really, really, really well. No, he so loves even really, really bad people. The baddest person you can think of. That Democrat you hate. 
That Republican you can't stand. That person who you think calls right wrong and wrong right. That person that you can hardly stand to speak a word to and you find yourself avoiding them at all costs. He loved a world who began to operate by their own systems and their own way of doing things and their their own system of trying to be right and be made right with God and just do good things to other people. And then there's a whole other group of of the world that, that treat each other with disrespect, who don't honor one another, who steal from one another, who manipulate each other, who twist the truth, who divide from one another who step on the backs of other people to elevate themselves. He loved that world so much. He was obsessed with that world so much that he sent his one and only son that whosoever, whosoever, that's not how it works down here. That is not how we do things. See, I, I scratch your back and you scratch mine. Like, see, I I go out of my way for you, and you, you say thank you. I get you the really, really great Christmas present, and you wear it. (laughs) And if not, I'm coming to your house, and I'm taking it back and giving it to somebody who does appreciate it. Isn't that the way we do things? I mean, even one of the most purest forms of love that we have on this earth, marriage, it's still a mutual contract. It's still a mutual commitment. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I do, I do, I do, I do. Do you do? Yes, I do, I do, I do, do. Okay, kiss each other and you're good to go. It's mutual. We're in this together. We're committed to one another. But yet Jesus came recklessly, giving absolutely everything that he had for people who would not even acknowledge him at all. No strings attached. He came for the whosoevers. Who are the whosoevers in your life? Who are the whosoevers that come to your mind? Who are the whosoevers that you think don't deserve? Who are the whosoevers that you can't seem to forgive? Who are the whosoevers that you're waiting for them to make the first move? Who are the whosoevers that hurt you so deeply that you can barely stand to speak their name? John 3.16, the ordinary common verse that is nothing. It's not, it's not ordinary. It's not common. It says, he so loves those people. He so loved the broken, sinful, fallen, destitute, bound for no good, with no eternal hope. He so loved those people. So, he continues to teach. And he establishes that the reason I'm here is because I I came here to love you and I came here to save you. And it's as if he could hear 
the thoughts of maybe those who were listening to them, but what about fill in the blank? What about that person who fill in the blank? What, what about the ones who say that you don't exist? What about the ones who stand against everything that we stand for? What about those who stand for everything that we stand against? What about them? And so he continues with verse 17, and he says, let me just clarify this for you. I did not come into this world to condemn the world. I did not come to simply establish my opinion and set it straight once and for all who's on the side of wrong and who's on the side of right. Of course, there is a right, and of course, there is a wrong. Of course, there are moral teachings of Jesus. Of course, there are certain principles and truths that he set out. Of course, he says, that, that wasn't really why I came, because I know that that will never happen unless I do something else first. So I didn't simply come so that I could hold up picket signs and establish boycotts and make sure that all my posts were strategically crafted in such a way to convince everyone that they're on the wrong side and I'm on the right side. I didn't really come to do that. What I, what I came to do was not condemn the world and not establish my opinion of right and wrong. What I came to do was something so much greater. I came to so love the world so that they might be saved. So that they might find eternal life through me. Not through getting it right. Not through doing all the right things. Not through finally coming to their senses, but through Christ and Christ alone. And that changes everything about morality. That changes everything about the way that we think. That changes everything about the way we view the world. That changes everything. But it comes only through Him. And so he knew his purpose, he knew why he was here, and he knew what he must be about first, was not sizing everyone up based on the labels that were given them, not assessing and judging and, and making their predetermined uh, suppositions and theories and ideas about everyone else and every people group and every ideology that's out there. He did not come to do that. He came for one thing and one thing alone. It was to love first at all costs because he so loved even the bad people. He so loved even the people on the other side of the issue. He so loved the people that seemed to reject you. He so loved the people that mistreated you. He so loves fill in the blank that that he came here to save them, not to simply call them out. In fact, what Jesus modeled for us was something so much different. You know, the people that Jesus called out the most were not sinners, were not bad people. It was the religious people who thought they had it all together. It was the religious people who thought that they were so good that they didn't need him. That's who he called out the most. And when he did call out someone who was in their sin, he only did it through the context of relationship first. Do you know that he was on his way somewhere? And he saw a woman who was a Samaritan woman, and she was at a well, and she was getting water, and she only found herself there that day at that time because she knew that no one else would be there. Because she was so ashamed and she was so rejected and she was so despised by others because of her lifestyle choices, because of the decisions that she had made, because of who she was and which side of the track she grew up on. She didn't want to be found there with anybody else. And yet Jesus was passing by and men in this culture did not speak to women at all because women were, were of such low stature, were thought of as so low that they didn't even deserve to be spoken to by another man and certainly not a Samaritan woman. 
And yet what Jesus chose to do in that moment first, even though clearly he could say everything about her life, he knew everything about this woman, he first went and he established relationship with her. And he did that by speaking the first word. Even speaking to her was a sign that I want to know you. And more importantly, I want you to know me. And so he spoke to her and then he elevated her value. She must have been thinking, what, what is this man doing speaking to me? I'm, I'm not important. I, I have no value. In fact, I come here and I don't want anybody to see me. I'm, I know who I really am. Who, who is this that he, would, that he would speak to me? Now he's having a conversation with me. She must, must have been thinking, maybe... Maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something that I've been missing. I mean, I've been wearing this label and I've been trying to do things my own way. And I've been trying to feel, find fulfillment in life on my own. But, but maybe there's something different about him because he's beginning to tell me about everything that I've ever done. And he begins to speak to the woman. He says, do you have a husband? And she says, no. And he said, you're right. You've actually had five husbands and the one you're with is not even your husband now. See, it's, it's not that there's not a, a right and wrong or a best way and a God's plan and a certain way that he does things, but it always came through the context of relationship and adding value to the people that he encountered. On another occasion, Jesus, and I think this was intentional, but Jesus picked the baddest person he could find. He was a tax collector, a tax collector that turned on his own people, left some of them bankrupt because of the money that he embezzled from them for himself in the name of collecting taxes for the government. The tax collectors were so bad that almost everywhere in this culture that tax collectors were mentioned, it was always tax collectors and sinners. Like, sinner is just not good enough. We have to make sure everybody knows you're so bad. You're a tax collector. That's who you are. The sinner thing, it doesn't even work. And yet he found this person. And he associated with this person. You mean he hung out with them? Yeah. He did one of the most uncommon things that could have been done. And he went and had dinner. Dinner was not like us having dinner. Dinner was an intimate thing that happened. You didn't invite someone into your home unless you had relationship with them. You did not go into someone else's home unless you had relationship with them. But Jesus first built relationship and added value to everyone he encountered, even bad people. Even people who were not like him, of course, but not like the good people of the day. Not like the ones who were thought good of in their day. He picked bad people and he went to their house and ate. Do you know what? He was not worried about guilt by association. Oh, well, maybe people will think. Maybe they'll think that I'm okay with this whole tax collecting gig. I better not do that. No, he wasn't concerned about that. Could it be that, that we have such trouble finding our true identity in Christ that we think we have to put up a front? 
that we might be misunderstood in the name of loving somebody that we actually condone their sin? I mean, how misguided are we to think that our highest call as a Christian here on earth is to make sure that we know that everybody else knows exactly what's right and what's wrong, and I will not be associated with that. That is not our highest calling. It's important. There's a place for that. There's a time for that because sin is ultimately not good for people. Sin is sin because it hurts us or it hurts God or hurts somebody else. And you know why that matters? Because God loves us so much. He doesn't want us to hurt. He doesn't want other people to hurt. That's why it's sin. It's not because there's a list of all this bad stuff over here. Sin is sin because it hurts us or it hurts someone else. And God loves you and the person next to you on, the, on your right side, the person next to you on your left side, the person on the other side of the church that you haven't spoken to for years because you're still holding some bitterness. Because God loves us so much. And his truth comes through the context of relationship and adding value to the lives of others. So he establishes this and he continues in the gospel of John. He says, so a new command I give you. I I came here and I love you so much. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to love me and then I want you to go and I want you to love others in the same way. We see this again, and it's said in a different way in Matthew. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So there's another story of Jesus, and there's a keeper of the law. Some would have called them an attorney at the time, a lawyer. But someone who was an absolute expert in the law. And it says that one day an expert of the law came to Jesus and He came to test him. Let's just see what this guy's really made of. Let's see if he really knows what he's talking about. Let's see if he really knows what I know. Let's see if he really is who he says he is. So he came and he said, can you tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life? Can you tell me what I'm supposed to do? And Jesus, as he's famous for doing, he answers a question with a question. And he says, well, what, what do you know? What do you think the law says? So by this time, you would have heard the teachings of Jesus that all the Old Testament and all the writings, all the law and the prophets of old, all the, what, what all the religious scholars would have known, he, he had already summarized these. And so this, this teacher of the law, this, this lawyer of the law, this one who came to test him would have known, well, Jesus summed this up and he's already told us, I want you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want you to love your neighbor in the same way. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says, right, go do that. Just love me with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. I mean, this guy, this teacher of the law, I mean, his head would have been spinning. I can't do that. I can't love with all of my heart, all of my strength, all of my mind, and all of my soul. I mean, there's going to be that time when I waver. I've already done it before. I know in my heart of hearts, I can't do that. And I certainly can't love everyone else. So uh, let me hear, let me, Jesus, I need to, I need to ask a follow-up question, please. I got one more. Um, Can you just tell me who my neighbor is so I can make sure that I'm justified? I got to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Can you just tell me what to do? Who's my neighbor and what do I have to do? Isn't that just like us? Just give me the steps. 
Just tell me what I have to do. Okay, I'll read my Bible every morning, 30 minutes. I got it. I'm good. I'll do that. Show up, give some money, do some good to people, help little old ladies across the street, put my shopping cart back. I'm good. I'll do that. Check the box. I got it. Just tell me what I have to do. So Jesus answers him with a made-up story to prove a point. A parable is a made-up story. Jesus could put whatever details he would like to put into this story. But the man says, can, can you help me justify myself so that I know I'm doing it right? Can you tell me who my neighbor is? And so he says there was a Jewish man and he was, he was on his way down the road and he was robbed and he was beaten and he was left for half dead in a ditch. And then along came a priest. A priest, the one who is intimately acquainted with the Holy Scriptures. One who was likely on his way from Jerusalem. One who was likely just at the temple was passing by. He saw the man and he decided to go on the other side. Isn't that like us? We see those who are broken, those who are misguided, those who are half dead, those who are on the other side. And we go ahead and we position ourselves on this side and everyone else is on that side and we're the right ones and you're the wrong ones and we do the same thing. Not only that, but the priest would have known if I touch a dead body, I become ceremonially unclean and then I cannot therefore be, continue to be a priest. I can't go into the temple and lead other people to God if I touch someone who is dead. And that guy over there, he may be dead. I don't know if he's half dead or all the way dead, but if I touch him, I know that I will then become unclean and I won't be able to do what I do. Isn't that interesting that his theology kept him from doing the very thing that Jesus would have wanted him to do? His theology about what was right and wrong and the systems that they had in place told him that I can't go and love that person the way that I need to love them because my theology gets in the way. So he goes down the list and he says, then, then a Levite came. This is, this is a, a temple keeper, somebody who's like an assistant to the priest. And so in this culture, what they would have been looking for in the story, because they find out, okay, the, the, the Levite, he didn't go either. He saw the man and he didn't go. He didn't help him. He went to the other side as well. They would have expected, okay, maybe like, maybe like the religious person who was like the, the gatekeeper in the outer courts of the temple. Maybe he's next in line and maybe he'll do something. But what Jesus did is something so extraordinary that everyone would have gasped. Not the priest, not the Levite, but we're going to go all the way down the list and we're going to say that there was a foreigner. He was a Samaritan. And when he saw the man, something was different about him because he was not worried about justifying himself and doing everything right. What he had was something much different than what the other two had. It says he had compassion on the man. Jesus tells this story because, in fact, he is the good Samaritan. There is no one else like him. There is no one good like him because, see, Jesus was also called a foreigner to this world. Those who knew him did not even know who he was. He was unrecognizable to those because they were looking for one thing, but they got another. And this can't be the Messiah. And they misrepresented him so much. They did not recognize him so much that they ultimately crucified him because he was a foreigner in this world. In John, it says, are we wrong to assume that 
this man that you call Jesus, he's actually just a Samaritan? In other words, they were slandering him. They were putting a title on him. They were putting a label on him. Jesus is nothing. He just comes from this little town of Nazareth, and nothing good comes from Nazareth. He can't be worthy. He can't be the Messiah. He can't be the one. He was a foreigner in this land, and yet he is the one who came to us when we were broken, and we were destitute, and we had no hope, and we were hurting, and we were left for no good, and we were living half dead. We were alive on the outside. We're living, breathing on this people-breathing planet. We're here. We exist. But on the inside, we're completely dead. See, we too were left half dead, alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. And Jesus did not simply come to this earth to make bad people good, to not set straight who's right and who's wrong, but he came to make dead people alive. And because of that, you and I are sitting in this room right now, and we have the opportunity to be alive in Christ. We have the opportunity to find our identity in Christ. We can be found in Christ because we were the broken ones on the side of the road. And I wonder, I wonder if sometimes that we're so judgmental, I wonder sometimes if we're so critical of other people because we don't fully find our identity in knowing I was the one on the side of the road. I was the one that didn't do it his way. I was the one that found myself so broken in a ditch that I could not get out of. I was the one who had no hope out of my own way. I was the one who was misguided. I was the one whose theology wasn't correct. I was the one who hurt other people. I was the liar. I was the thief. I was the manipulator. I was the one. What if we were able to find our identity in Christ, knowing that we were the broken ones? We were the hurting ones. And he came to us in love. The identity that he gave us is loved. I am loved. And when I can receive and I can wear the name love and I can be covered completely knowing that he loves me, I can then love others. The Samaritan in the story, Jesus, he picked up the man, he put him on his own donkey. And he went and he carried to them to the end, to the inn. He left a man at the inn and he said, I want you to take care of him. Could it be? Could it be that the inn is the church? Could it be that the little inn there on the side of the road was strategically positioned in a place where people were often taken advantage of and they were beaten up and they were abused and they were hurt and they were lonely because that's in fact in history that's the story that is told that on that particular road that Jesus was referring to in that story there were little inns set up in places and spaces on that road that were likely that people would get robbed that people would be left to die could it be that we are the ones who are part of the inn that we are the ones that Jesus is saying, I'm the good Samaritan, I love you, I found you in the ditch, and now I want you to do the same for others. He says to the innkeeper, I'll pay for it, I'll give you everything you need to do it, and I'm going to come back again. But I want you to care. I want you to care. So I'm going to sum everything up right now. 
Pastor Mark says it's good to leave everybody with one thing to remember, and I'm going to do that because he's my boss. (laughs) Could I just give us all in this room, myself included, because honestly, I I probably have the most difficult time with everything that I've preached, because I'm right a lot. (laughs) Could I just give us all in this room permission to care. Permission to care for those that are making lifestyle choices that you don't agree with. Permission to truly care, have empathy and compassion for people that want things for our country that you think are destructive. Permission to care for people who have rejected you and abused you and hurt you. Permission to care as if they too are loved. Could the identity and the label that we assume on other people be the identity of loved by God? You're loved by God. You're loved by God too. Nope, nope. You're so loved by God. You're so loved by God too. Could the people that we see, could that be our first filter? So loved by God. As we pray, our communion attendants are coming forward to prepare the elements. Father, we thank you that you so loved us, that you so love us, that your body was broken for us, that your blood was shed for us, and that in this moment we can recount the time when you came to us and we received you and we received the gift that you gave us when we were found in our own brokenness, in our own way, in our own struggle, in our own place with no hope, with no way out. Remind us that we are the bad people. Remind us that we are the ones in need of you. Remind us that we are the ones on the side of the road half dead. And that we need you. Thank you that when we have you, we have everything. That you don't leave us on the side of the road. You care for us. You bandage our wounds. You heal us. You love us too much to let us stay broken. And we thank you. So I pray that this morning, we would remember who we really are. We are the broken ones, but we are loved by you. And because we are loved, we will never be the same again. I pray that you would bring people to our minds, those that we need to extend your love to. Those that we need to go ahead and take off the old label that we've put on other people. God, show us, reveal to us the people that we need to go ahead and slap the label of love by God on. Help us to do that in this moment. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This morning, you're invited to the table.